This program is paid for by itswhereiam.com. The content of this program does not reflect the values or opinions of 91.5 KUNV or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Good morning, Las Vegas. It's Zandra Pollard with It's Where I Am. Today, we're talking about student loan forgiveness, the continuation of the wealth gap. So, we have $10,000 knocked off. Are you happy? Are you excited about that? Or are you pissed off because it's not enough? For me, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more, so much more to pay, so much more that is owed. Um, There's a lot of people who are upset about it. There are some people who are grateful for it. And it just all kind of depends on, you know, your personal situation, right? So you go through school It's time to pay back these debts. Now, how long did you go to school for? Right? So there's going to be a difference from from someone who went to school for a couple of years and someone who went to school for like eight or ten. Right? So today I have my guest, Dr. Christopher Witt, who is the vice chancellor of Denver University. Um, He is a head of the diversity equity, inclusion, right? Department there. So thank you. Welcome. Uh, You actually brought this uh, topic to mind uh, from Facebook, I saw. And um, I was a little confused at first, but I think I have some clarity now. But can you please help our um, listeners understand how the 10 grand really is not doing that much? Well, I, I want to be clear that, you know, knocking ten to $20,000 off of anyone's individual debt is definitely going to do more than it not happening. Um, you know, the, the real concern comes when we talk about kind of on, on a broad level, uh, when we talk about the black community, other communities of color across the United States that really live in the reality of a racial wealth gap. Um, when compared to their white counterparts. And that racial wealth gap has um, persisted for generations. And when we look at the last couple decades, it's really fluctuated depending on the status of our economy and, you know, the the various market fluctuations that we've seen uh, between, between 10 times as much wealth in the hands of white families versus their um, black counterparts all the way up to over 20 times. And when I say that, I'm not talking about 10% or 20%. I'm talking about 10 to 20 times more wealth in the hands of of white households versus uh, similar households uh, in black communities. And then when we look at the comparisons between black and Latino communities and others, there are fluctuations, but there's still major gaps there. Uh, So with that being a reality, Uh, just because of the history that we've had of wealth-building tools being designed to help build a white middle class, to help build uh, wealth in the hands of white families. In many cases throughout the 20th century, there were various points where uh, black folks were excluded from those wealth-building tools, and and we still live with those legacies because wealth is something that is generational. So if we're talking about that, that very real wealth gap, that has been passed from generation to generation, we end up having situations where if individuals do want to 
really avail themselves of higher education, if they want to avail themselves of graduate or professional degrees, um, there's a higher likelihood that a, a person from a black family uh, would end up borrowing more money than their white counterpart because of those uh, variations in wealth that could occur with their families. So right. now that we're in the moment of debt relief, we're seeing that uh, black folks have exponentially more student debt than their white counterparts. And it's very interesting that on average, you're talking about that white student debt remaining with folks uh, at this current moment. Many statistics show that you're around ten to $15,000, uh, whereas when you're talking about black folks, you're talking about many times more than that, okay. uh, depending on who it is. It could be five times more. So if you're relieving or forgiving uh, ten to 20000 you're going to have a lot of white folks who are going to be able to erase their debt, if not get it down to such a very manageable space um, that it's not going to impact their family wealth accumulation. Whereas if you have a black family where individuals may have 50,000 or more and you get a $10,000 forgiveness, even a 20,000, you still have a significant debt load right. and you have a significant monthly payment. So the, the big deal is that ultimately uh, we may end up, we could see a widening of the racial wealth gap with something that had been really touted as uh, something that could really do away with elements of the racial wealth gap. Wow. So uh, you make it white versus black. So this is the thing. It's like, well, uh, my good friend who is here actually in studio, uh, Miss Carol Cruz, is here. Um, and she represents the uh, recovery community, right? So it's like there are a lot of people who are affected. But when we look at race, um, we have to think like, okay, well, who's more likely to get the higher paying job? You know, that's an issue. Um, you know, people go through years of school and then um, when it's time to pay it back, you know, that money is not available. You know, you can get that loan so quick. But is that job coming quick enough to pay that debt off? Right. So I wanted to bring in Carol Cruz in, who is a uh, certified peer support specialist. Uh, she's also a, a life coach, right? A life coach and a speaker. A recovery coach and also a person in long term recovery. Thank you. Thank you. So I would like for you to um, add to the conversation about the recovery community and how they're affected by these student loans and the availability of even getting a student loan, right? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Wick, also, too, for sharing your professionalism and uh, background around these issues because you see it firsthand um, being an educator. Um you know, being a person in long-term recovery um, since 1994, and when I say I'm in recovery, I'm in, in recovery from substance use, uh, from also mental health disorder. Um, most recently, well, I say in the last 10 years, addressing generational trauma, which we are now linking trauma specifically to mental health disorders and uh, addiction. And um, when, I, when I think about the first time I stepped into a college classroom 
And no one told me what it was going to mean for those student loans that I took back, took out in, back in 1981. I'm aging myself yeah. a little bit. And um, I had only just recently, and I'm going to be 60 years old next year. I know I look good. Yeah, you look good, girl. <laughs> I look good. Um, I just finished off paying off that first round of student loans. Reason being, when I got out of college, I was very much in debt, in debt and also in um, the throes of my addiction. Um, I was also uh, formerly incarcerated. So with being incarcerated, I was no longer able to take out any student loans. I wasn't able to get any type of loans to pay off those student loans. And so until I found my pathway to recovery, and which now I'll be celebrating 28 years in a few weeks, uh, there is where, you know, again, there was no one to help me plan out what I needed to expect. And as a person of color, I feel that we are... It is a black and white issue, mm -hmm. and I, I completely agree with Dr. Wick. Is that wit? Wit. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, we we often are targeted, just like we were targeted in the housing market, um, to take out loans that they knew we couldn't pay back. They knew that we couldn't pay back for the simple fact that we weren't getting the jobs out there after graduation, like our white counterparts. Okay. At least we were getting the jobs where we weren't getting the salary offers. And so if I'm not getting the same salary offer, how am I going to pay back those loans? Well, it's not, you know, it's not my employer's responsibility. Um, it is mine. I signed the contract. I signed the agreement that I would pay back these loans. Well, then they also have like, um, uh, what are those programs where you can work in underserved communities and it helps pay, go towards your student loan or something it's like that? Public student loan forgiveness. Okay. Uh, so in many cases, you end up having an income-based, income-driven repayment plan and you end up having, you know, if you make payments, if you're working in, Let's say, uh, you know, federal workforce, I believe at some point it was a 10-year plan. If you're working in other areas of public service that qualify, if you have 20, it can be 20 years uh, of payments. But some of those things have been adjusted under some of Biden's plans to make it a little bit easier. Okay. Um, but there are a lot of folks who don't qualify in that space and they still mm -hmm. have the debt. And regardless mm -hmm. of, of either side of the coin, a lot of times folks find themselves making monthly payments in whatever form or fashion they are in for for basically um, servicing interest. Uh, mm -hmm. So you'll see right. folks who take out loans and the years go by and they may have paid back close to or the amount that they originally took out, but they're still in the hole and they're still continuing. And that's what makes it so curious where it's good that something is being done, but it's very curious that there was no specific mention of how do we attack the um, the interest? How do we attack, you know, if people have paid off the amount that they had taken out, is there forgiveness there? Moving forward, what are we doing with these 
uh, interest rates and also really looking at the fact that they had this $125,000 income cap and $125,000 income in one community may look a lot different than in another community because of what we started with, the wealth gap. And really being able to have those resources that are needed for so many other elements of life, buying a home, taking care of family, things of that nature. Right. I'm not sure if that was the best approach to put any kind of income uh, parameters rather than really saying, well, let's focus on what is your debt? What is the interest? What have you paid? How do we kind of work it in that way? Mm. And what do we do moving forward? So I hope that there is more discussion and more movement on this, that this isn't the end of the line. Because, uh, you know, I think that, that, you know, folks action. missed the window 2016 with Bernie Sanders, 16 and 20. How about that? Uh, which is how I met you, right? Uh, during the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Um, we want all of the debts gone, right? Well, I know I do. So the 10000 isn't doing very much for me personally. And so I decided to have this show, which is about mental health and wellness. But the stress of paying back these loans definitely affects my mental uh, and emotional state, right? So well, I'm sure it would affect <laughs> folks' mental and emotional state. But also, if you're dedicating so much of your income to servicing loans, or if you're not able to dedicate your income to servicing the loans, what that might mean to you in other spaces that may end up being a barrier to you being in position to get the best mental health care, be it right. actual care or be it being able to take sometimes take time for yourself and, and take a break. Sometimes we don't think about those elements also. And, you know, I've met so many people who have continued their, their education just because they were not ready to pay back those student loans. And so they're accruing more and more debt. Right. So it's like, it's great. You know, so-and-so you became a doctor, but it was kind of like a delay in paying back that student loan. So I've heard that many times out there. I'd like to address what you were just speaking around the mental health piece, sure. um, because I feel I, I'm, I'm a lived experience professional. <laughs> okay. um, I'm, in, I'm in the uh, school of hard knocks of lived experience around mental health. And you just speaking on that, on how it just kind of snowballs into if I can't put food on the table and I'm putting all my, my income into one, one area, or I'm not, and now I can't even take out a loan to buy a house or buy a car. Right. Um, I am now newly grandma, glamma, to triplets. Uh, they're back in Connecticut, and I'm going to be moving back um, this coming next month. And I fear for their future. For the fact that my son, you know, has now not one, not two, but three children. He also has student debt. He also wants to buy a home large enough to fill for his family. And that alone, and he's also diagnosed with a mental health disorder. So that in itself, and he's a black man. Okay, I should have put that first. <laughs> um, so that in itself, all of those things compounded 
And we wonder why, you know, like I get really angry when I hear people, well, this is not fair. I paid off all my student loans. Well, you Mm -hmm. know what? If we were all back in the 50s and 60s, we wouldn't have had to pay any loans because there was no loans for schooling, for Mm -hmm. college, right? There there was a GI Bill. There was other means, but it wasn't targeted. It wasn't serving us as people of color. But, you know, the reason why I said earlier that I don't see it as just black and white, and I'm sure many of our listeners out there don't as well, because there is that mental health um, component, right? So people are able to get an education if they have mental health issues, but how are they going to, you know, do in the workforce? You know, how's that learning curve going to go? And so those folks will be affected as well. So it's kind of um, easier for me. I do understand the black and white piece, um, but there are other groups of people such as I felt the recovery community uh, folks that are um, in psych services at school, um, I think it it affects their future as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this definitely um, cuts across ethnic racial um, boundaries. I think when we're just looking at it in the macro and we relate it to some of the arguments that have been made in recent years in the political realm of, oh, if we have student forgiveness, student loan forgiveness, we'll see a, a, a decrease in the racial wealth gap. Well, that's if you have serious loan forgiveness, not this minuscule right. uh, loan forgiveness. But yeah, I definitely think that there are people of all different backgrounds who, you know, there's going to be folks of all backgrounds who this saves them. And there's going to be folks from all backgrounds where this really doesn't do a lot for them and then in, in their families and communities. But I, I just like to go back um to, to the point of, you know, all of the things that it takes to really support a family in the United States. When you're talking about purchasing a home, having transportation, mm-hmm. education, all of those different things. And, and those are things that are directly related to the wealth gap, that there's going to be some people who are going to be able to have that down payment covered by mom and dad for the home. Right. There's going ha- to be people who have education and other things that are covered or have, you know, the support structure or systems to provide either resources for childcare, provide direct childcare. There's so many things in terms of connections and resources that come with having um, intergenerational wealth Mm -hmm. versus not having that. And then on top of that, we go back to the idea that if you didn't have somebody to help put that bill for college, that on top of all these other things we're mentioning, you're, you're getting that piece of mail every month saying you need to pay back um, this loan with pretty heavy interest. Right. And because, you know, we also, you know, we fall into a lot of us in um, marginalized groups, you know, first generation, um, you know, college students. Right. So, I mean, they're affected as well. I just want to add them into the equation as well. We also see a tax on. Um, individuals, sometimes in the media, attacks on individuals who've gone to get graduate and professional degrees. Yet, we have this whole push in, in those same media spaces to say, well, in black and brown communities and other communities, we need more doctors, lawyers, professors, engineers, all of these professions that require extended schooling. Mm-hmm. But then when folks come from those communities and maybe don't have familiar wealth 
to help them foot the bill and they have to take out loans, then you hear people screaming from the rooftops, well, we shouldn't help them. But, right. but then we have folks who say, you know, we bail out the auto industry, we bail out banks, we bail out all of these big entities, and you don't hear too much. But then when it's your neighbor, mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden people get really upset. And I think some of it is kind of, it starts to become a little bit more personal because they can imagine right. the person across the street for however they feel about them. Whereas when we're talking about the big bank or the big auto um, company, for whatever reason, we as Americans have some kind of disconnect. I think it might be rooted in the whole false sense of rugged individualism um, that we talk about, but we don't really live and we probably shouldn't <laughs> try to live it. We really should be more collectivist in our mindset. Yes. yes. Well, I was like, you know, I was thinking first thing I thought of with all of this was uh, meritocracy. And you were asking me, like, I don't get it. Why are you asking about meritocracy? Because there are people who just feel like if I can do it, you can do it. And they don't look at, you know, the other factors, some of which you've mentioned. Uh, maybe there is a trust fund set up for them from their family, you know, just all of the different types of support, right, that people can have. So, yeah, we, we have to remember it's different. All of us are navigating our day to day differently. Right. All of us are navigating American society differently based on our lived experience, based on who we are, based on the various intersecting identities that make us, uh, you know, us, you know, make us each an individual. And this whole idea of meritocracy, that everything is based solely on uh, skill or, or merit, it, it really isn't applicable in an American, con you know, American construct. And we always talk about it. it's about who you know and, you know, circumstances and, and where right. it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to reward people who have done the work, who have the talent, we should always try to do that. But at the same time, we can't go around with the delusion that everybody who got where they got was simply in a vacuum through hard work. I've accomplished mm -hmm. a lot in my life and I had a lot of obstacles in my life. But at the same time, I'd be a straight out liar if I didn't say there were moments where I was in the right place at the right time. Sure. If I didn't make the most of connections that I made on my own other connections that were there. But I mean, really building on relationships and building on, on spaces that I've been in, it would just, like I said, it would just be a lie if I said, you know, all it was was hard work and there never was anything that had to do with the spaces I occupied and the people I knew. That I don't think that would be true for any of us. Well, sir, I want to thank you for coming on to the show. Um, and if you need to, you know, hear this information again, you know, you can always go on my website. It's where I am.com. Also, the podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. So thank you again, Vice Chancellor, Dr. Christopher Witt, for coming on to the show. Thank you for the valuable information that you've provided. Is there anything you want our listeners to know? Um, I would just say, you know, to continue to pay attention um, to the ways in which we have barriers to various areas of accomplishment 
uh, be it in education or any other space, because if we can pay attention and have conversations about those barriers, we can do a better job of moving those barriers out of the way for future generations so people really can uh, end up standing on merit. And, and I'd just like to thank you for, for the conversation, and it's good seeing you and good connecting, and everyone take care. Thank Thanks you, sir. You. Wow, it was so great to have him on. And so, Carolyn, you are in studio. Thank you for coming well, thank in. Thank you for inviting me. This Absolutely. Is a, this is a true treat, especially today. Especially awesome. Today. Yeah, okay, so what makes today so special? I know there's some things you want to mention. Yeah, so um, as I shared earlier, I'm a person in long-term recovery. Um, what that means to me is that my life has changed Especially, you know, I I have a life that I can live well, and um, I'm in that place of wellness and recovery and healing. Um, today is actually um, overdose uh, international overdose prevention awareness day, and um, if you look on the CDC uh, website, you would see from 1999 to 2020. We've lost over a million people and to so wait, overdoses that, to opioid epi, due, due to the opioid epidemic. But this awareness day is on is when is it it's, August it's 31st? August thirty first? Okay, yes. So we're fast forwarded to mm-hmm. September, right? Because we are pre recorded. In yes. case you didn't know, mm-hmm. um, but what is going on in the month of September? Um, so today is a day of remembrance, August okay. 31st. I know this won't be aired for a few weeks, but we, you know, someone posted it today on Facebook that really helped me to really absorb what International Overdose uh, Awareness Day means. Okay. And um, it's every day. We lose over 200 people per day due to an overdose, a fatal overdose, either to fentanyl or prescribed medication, meaning an opioid. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that is going to reverse a person to coming back to life, to living, is uh, to administer naloxone or Narcan. Um, And and that's the space that I come from. So I, I speak about recovery, but I can't speak about recovery without remembering all the folks that we have lost, okay. you know, over since 1999 in regards to the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't really speak to the crack epidemic where I came. That's where I came into my recovery back in the 80s. Okay. And um, and mass, incar- mass incarceration for folks that were not getting the same ser- uh, sense of services that the people are getting today. Um, so, you know, that's where my my journey has been and my purpose has been around bringing awareness, removing stigma around what addiction looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, I'm a person in recovery. I don't I don't call myself an addict. I'm no longer in my active addiction. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow, September 1st, uh, we kick off recovery month. And yes, it is. We we honor it by celebrating those that are in their whether whatever pathway they are in of recovery. And uh, we have several events going on here, and um, across the country, across the country, there is many uh, events and recovery walks, and just bringing awareness to communities that we do recover, and that recovery is possible and healing is possible. 
Um, this has been my lifelong journey. As I shared earlier, I'm going to be 60 years old. I am not going anywhere as far as, you know, career-wise. Um, I, I work with folks, um, connect, uh, you know, I connect people into training to get their state certification uh, here in Las Vegas. Um, we've worked on that. Um, it is a state law that people that are de- doing peer services um, are also getting state certified. So there is a, a training involved, and they can find all that information on the Nevada Certification Board website. Okay. And um, and now I'm doing direct peer-to-peer services. Um, as I'm transitioning back to Connecticut, I found a position where it's remote, and I'm actually being able to do telehealth with individuals that are struggling through mental health disorders, um, eating disorders, um, and and also substance use. So um, I feel like I'm one of the blessed folks that have um, gone through this journey and been very successful. Um, also, just to mention, I found out that a very close friend of mine did die of an overdose yesterday. Oh, and wow. I had wished... I could have been there mm-hmm. or someone could have been there to administer naloxone um, because it saves lives. It's like a, a fire extinguisher. You never know when you're going to need it. So I know that was a lot. Um, but, you know, this this is uh, people need to be aware that um, there's help out there. There's help out there. You know, it's it's not as scarce as it used to be. And by having certified peer specialists out there working in the workforce and we're growing the workforce, it's it's amazing how what they're doing here in Las Vegas. Well, I want to thank you for um, being a guest on the show well, and sharing uh, this information with us. It is Recovery Awareness Month. OK, so we'll see you next month, every second Saturday of the month at 830 a.m. I'm Zandra Pollard. It's where I am. We'll see you next time. Bye.